The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 162. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Thank you, so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're concluding our discussion of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. We now pick up the discussion where we left off last time. So then we have the assassination of Gorkhan while uh, Kirk is asleep. Uh, the A cloaked vessel shoots the Klingon ship from right beneath the Enterprise, so close that the Enter- it looks like the Enterprise this, shoots it. This is a mistake because a ship moving in three dimensions is going to have cameras above it and below it, and they should see the photon torpedoes coming out of nowhere. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, scanners should be scanning and see where they originate from. But that disables the Klingon ship, that which allows a couple of uh, Enterprise crewmen who are in on the conspiracy to beam over and using gravity boots, which apparently are very rare in a spaceship in the yeah, 23rd century. Really? You'd think they'd have lots of them. Yes. <laughs> and, and also they're called alternately magnetic boots and gravity right. boots. Yeah. So apparently uh, they're boots that are meant to simulate gravity but don't actually manipulate gravity. They're just magnetic. Yeah. Uh, they go over, they shoot Gorkon while they're, all the Klingons are floating in, in zero G. And I love the I love the Klingon blood, yes. which is magenta in color. Establishes Klingon blood as being magenta here, but they 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 kind of leave that behind it in later series. Yeah, yeah. But I I like the uh, I like the Klingon blood blobs. And there's this actually there's a nice moment after the assassins have beamed out, and we get this shot of zero g on the klingon ship with bodies just kind of slowly rotating and blobs of blood in the air slowly merging mm-hmm. and spinning and it's just an it's an eerie moment that i think is very effective yes yeah um so kirk and mccoy beam over to see to do what they can but because apparently klingons don't have doctors <laughs> well no they said they did until this happened so apparently the doctor was one of the ones killed during the assault because okay. they didn't just kill gorkon they killed quite a number of people that's true that's true okay so and i mean i get the klingons wouldn't have like a whole medical staff because they consider you know illness as a weakness and that sort of stuff um but yeah okay so mccoy and, and kirk beam over then they were arrested for some reason, they leap to the conclusion. Well, they, I, I, I want to comment on, though, McCoy really tries to save Gorkon. And yeah. he gets uh, this goes beyond what we normally see. You know, normally McCoy will shoot someone with his hypo spray, which he does here. But yeah. he doesn't hop up on top of the person on a table and start trying to administer CPR to them. Right. 
and it really is effective and this is played like I don't think we even have music at this point. It's just allowing us to focus on McCoy's effort to save Gorkon. And he's narrating us through it, talking about how Gorkon is not responding as he ratchets up his efforts to save him. The thing that's implausible about this is he says he doesn't have knowledge of his anatomy. And and no, you should, as someone who encounters Klingons, you should have a basic knowledge of the anatomy of right. the principal rivals of the Federation, because you're likely to be in situations where you may need to care for a fallen Klingon or Romulan, and it may be urgent that you do so just like right now. Well, you know, after the trouble with Tribbles, you'd think McCoy would have done a little studying up on Klingon physiology, right? Yeah. <laughs> he had a mole in the Yeah, that it wasn't but, all that plausible. But I still really like the the performance yes. of uh, that uh DeForest Kelly gives here. And in fact, McCoy is is like is even as he's being arrested, he just like he's he's all out of sorts because he couldn't save him and he's like what's going on? Like like I I, I couldn't save him. I couldn't and I, I liked that that performance. It was um, it was really good, really you know, on on the mark. So they are they are arrested. There's a whole uh, thing about the uh, the the Klingon High Council warns the Federation not to interfere with this trial that they're going to put you know, for Kirk and McCoy. Uh, if you want any kind of peace uh, opportunity, then don't interfere with this. Don't try to rescue them. Um, and then we have the the trial, which is uh, interesting. We have. Mm-hmm. Um, John Shook as the oh I, f- I forgot to mention John Shook shows up again as a Klingon the Klingon yep. ambassador to the Federation. Uh, he was also a drawl on he was one of the drawls on Babylon Five. Okay. Uh, we also have another Babylon Five alumnus on Rura Pente. The prison master is uh, oh I'm blanking on his name all of a sudden. Morgan um, Shepard. Mor- G. Morgan Shepard. Yep. Who is uh, the Soul Hunter? on Babylon 5, and also the old Canton F. Delaware, Delaware on yeah. Doctor Who. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he's just so such a, a great voice. He's got to be in there. Yeah. There are only so many talented actors who are willing to wear that much latex, and so they show up in everything. <laughs> that's right. Right. Valeris continues to manipulate Spock and the rest of the crew, starts talking about sabotage in order to to to, uh, to get them from... Uh, Keep them They've been from ordered. just going back to Federation HQ. Right. She brings up the whole, the Sebo, the workers throwing their Sebo into the works. Was that a real thing or is that an urban legend? The, uh, I the think Dutch workers. Real. Okay. Um, but uh, that's the origin of the term sabotage. Uh, we get Kurtwood Smith playing the Federation president. Uh, if you have ever watched this, that 70s show, that's his, that's Red. <laughs> so, uh, just uh, an actor you might recognize, but under all the makeup, it's hard to see him. I, I wanted to comment on the trial scene. Yes. So the trial scene, we've got uh, Michael Dorn as Colonel Worf, apparently mm-hmm. an ancestor of our Worf. And that's nice to see. Uh, the trial is not really that believable. Even, I mean, yes, it's a Klingon trial, but even then, it's not really believable. Mm-hmm. You have Chang and Worf making motions and the judge sustaining or overruling them. And they're like just playing this for dramatic effect. They're yeah. like there's 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 not really consequences to oh that motion just got overruled or that remark just got stricken. They just blunder ahead in the trial anyway. This is it's sort of like dialogue tinsel being <laughs> being put up around what's really happening in this scene. 
even though it it doesn't they're not really taking the objections or the the sustainings and the overruling seriously as they would yeah. in a realistic drama but i like how the judge has this iron gauntlet with a ball that he uses as a gavel and when he bangs it it sparks yep that's cool i i like there's a moment where they play the tape which we in hindsight realize valeris had been recording from cap from outside captain kirk's door where he talks about how he can't trust klingons because they because of the death of my boy and and chang demands of kirk did you say that and Kirk says the line for William Shatner is, those words were spoken by me, which is a great use of the passive voice mm-hmm. to distance himself from those words. Instead of, instead of forthrightly acknowledging it and saying, yes, I said that, it's pat, which is active voice, it's passive voice, those words were spoken by me. I love how that distances himself, him from it. Also, there's an interesting moment they they play this scene with initially the Klingon speaking in Klingon, but then and Kirk and McCoy have these translators up to their ears, you know, little mm-hmm. devices, basically iPhones, I guess. Yeah. And then there's this hunt for Red October like moment where all of a sudden we pivot to the Klingon becomes English. Right. So, which is exactly what happens in Hunt for Red October. We hear the Russian speaking in Russian, and then. All of a sudden, actually on the word Armageddon, we pivot and the Russian becomes English. Right. And so we see the rest of the scene played out in English, but Kirk and McCoy continue to hold the translators up to their ears to show that there's that really all this dialogue is in Klingon. Yeah. And um, there's a great moment, which is actually based on a famous moment in American history where Adelaide Stevens is, is talking... Is it in the um, United Nations? But where originally Adelaide Stevens was like, answer me now. Don't wait for the translation. Yes. And Chang does that to Kirk. Right. Which would imply that Kirk can understand Klingon if he doesn't need to wait for the translation. Right, right. That Yeah, that was a good moment. The other thing about this, the, the trial, is how it attacks, like, for one, first, it attacks McCoy at his core. It questions his medical ability. It questions his medical ethics. And, you know, McCoy has always been the great doctor on the Enterprise who can handle anything. And here he's being, like, accused of being either incompetent or in collusion. And, you know, if you're not in collusion, then you're an incompetent doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like that. Um, Chang also gives that line where he says captains are responsible for the actions of their crew. Yeah, so Kirk, yeah, if you, yeah. If you, if you didn't cross over yourself. You're still responsible, so th- there's that. <laughs> yeah, no, we had that dispute in a previous episode. Um, so they are, uh, they, in the end, they're convicted and sent off to Rurapente. The and, Gulag Rurapente. Notice that it's called a, gru- a Gulag at one yeah. point. Gulags were uh, Soviet prison camps. Often in Siberia, where it was cold and snowy yep. and deadly to leave, just and like Rurapente. Just like Rurapente, <laughs> yeah. And Rurapente is kind of interesting because once they get down into the into the dilithium mines, we have this collection of aliens, and it's a, it's vaguely reminiscent of the of the cantina scene in Star Wars, yeah. in A New Hope, only with a yeah. lot more fighting. It it actually reminds me a lot of in Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one when they that that crew was sent to a prison and they were surrounded by aliens, 
And I wonder if there's a yeah. bit of an homage from that to this scene. Yeah, although from from sure I can see that given the timeline, Guardians may have been referencing this, but this I think is referencing the Cantina. Yeah, because probably. we haven't had a lot of aliens interacting other than sitting around listening to a briefing on yeah. Star Trek. Um, th- there's a a moment before they descend in where the the camp commander, again played by Morgan G. Morgan Shepard, comes out and gives them a speech about how you can't. There's no escape. And it's very reminiscent to this case of the bridge over the River Kwai. There's a yeah. a scene like that in in that movie, so it's it's very evocative of that. Uh, they meet a shapeshifter in the prison named Marcia, played by the actress Iman, uh, who was a model, I think, before she yeah she did, was a model yeah before she got into acting. Um, and she, she's <laughs> also a camelid shapeshifter who, yep. after kissing Kirk, becomes a horrible monster, leading <laughs> to some some yeah. humor. And then eventually, she's going to lead Kirk and McCoy out so they can be killed while attempting to escape. Yeah. And she says she's going to be given a full pardon. But weirdly, she turns into Kirk, and they fist fight. And we have a great moment where Kirk's, the real Kirk says, I can't believe I kissed you. And the her, as Kirk, says, must have been your lifelong ambition, which is, <laughs> which is a great meta reference to yeah. the fact that people have criticized Bill Shatner for being too self-involved and, <laughs> you know, loving himself too much and it being too egotistical. And yeah. so it's, I just think it's a tribute to William Shatner that he's willing to to deliver that poke line. fun at himself <laughs> yeah. and deliver that line with such gusto. Yeah, yeah, I did like that. I did like that. There is actually another uh, moment just before that where Marcia climbs into Kirk's bed, you know, in the middle of the night in the in the in the barracks, and, and McCoy is like unbelieving. What yeah. is it with you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> another I, hanging a lantern on it. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was good. Um, then so back on Enterprise, they're searching for the gravity boots because you know Lord knows there's only one set of gravity boots that are possibly on the ship. Well, two. Yeah, right. Two sets. Spock explains why boots the boots must be somewhere on the ship, which is I appreciate it because I said, well, why wouldn't you just get rid of it? So they they know fans are going to ask, and so like, okay, you can't you can't throw them out in the trash. You can't because everybody would see it float by. It's yeah, just like those photon torpedoes that appeared out of nowhere underneath us. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, you can't vaporize them with a phaser because it sets off the alarms. Although, why did Valeris? Why are you shooting tonight's dinner? <laughs> like, well, yeah. for demo purposes. But I like how they have a real. I mean, you know, not many kitchens are fully equipped with a gun cabinet. <laughs> this is a warship, right? <laughs> yeah. Also, the, uh, the apparently, and they're inconsistent about this because this can't fire on a ship rule it, without it setting off alarms is only here. Yes. You know, they forget about this even before the end of the movie. They forget about this where yeah. the assassins have been killed with phasers on stun. So apparently you, they've already started to walk it back. And that, originally it was you can't fire a phaser, an unauthorized phaser on a ship. And without setting off an alarm, now you can as long as it's on stun. Right, right. We get an, another cameo. This time, Christian Slater shows up as an officer on the Excelsior who wakes up Sulu. Christian Slater is a big Trekkie, and his mom was the casting director and just put two and two together. And that's how he ended up on Star Trek. They uh, they searched. There's a whole montage of them searching the Enterprise, which was kind of cool. I like the... Like they're turning out every door, every drawer, and they're going through everything. That was that was pretty good. 
by the way, the gravity boots thing could have been fixed with dialogue. Um, they should have just said, look, they were in the, sh- they were in the Klingon ship. There was blood all over the place that was floating. Some of it was bound to get on the gravity boots. Yeah. Or their cost or their uniforms. We should search for both gravity boots and uniforms that have Klingon blood on them. Right. Or we should just search for Klingon blood. And, right. and that'll that lead us to the evidence. Right. There's a, a crewman that they that the boots are in his cabinet and they just assume they must be his. Oh well his... Chekhov gets yeah. to play a comic character. I'm sure you have heard Russian Epic of Cinderella. If <laughs> shoe fits, wear it. And the guy has these weird amphibian feet that couldn't possibly go in the human gravity boot. That th- this predates the O.J. Simpson trial, so that that can't be a Simpson reference. Yeah, I was no. thinking of that um, O.J. Simpson. The, the if the glove fits, you, you must convict. Or if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You must acquit. Yeah, if was, you yeah. and if you let the if you let the accused spread his hand out to the <laughs> widest possible extent <laughs> as he puts on the glove and then not yank it down, and he's wearing a latex glove underneath it. Right, right, sure. Yeah, it doesn't fit. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I I note that the crewman's name was Dax, which we yes, yeah, predates Jedzia Dax, uh, of course. They there's a moment where they have to, the the Enterprise crew have to talk to a Klingon a listening post as they cross the border, and they're having to look through literal books to translate Klingon. Okay, so yeah, they tell us why they sense. they tell us why they can't use the Universal Translator, but well, they nobody just say they can't. They say yeah. it would be recognized. Sure, but um. Klingon, there's no Klingon speakers on board. Yohora doesn't speak Klingon. They can't well, just use the computer like Google Translate. Yeah, that's the, so <laughs> Uhura. So Nichelle Nichols argued against this scene, yeah. saying Uhura should have a basic knowledge of Klingon, and she should. Yeah. Or their computers should be so good in the future that it's irrelevant, in which case you don't need her to actually speak in Klingon. Right. But even if. It, it, this is really a limitation of the time where they yeah. aren't thinking, oh, the computer should just be giving us an on-screen translation of what the Klingons are saying. We don't need to look up it in a massive Klingon phrase book. Right. And then I type in or say quickly what I want, and it translates that for me, and then I read it back. Right. Um, you know, they, they're, this is 90, this is being filmed in 1990, 91. They're not thinking that far ahead about how this kind of situation would really work. So I can kind of give that to them. And the scene plays for comedy where Uhura is saying, we am thy ship so-and-so in route (laughs) to this place. We am carrying things and stuff. You know, (laughs) she should have said, we am, we am going to Bizarro world. (laughs) But and the the Klingon guys at the outpost let her pass and basically laugh it off and they're boozing it up. Yes, so they're <laughs> terrible the at real, their job. <laughs> this is the real reason they're getting across is the the guards are getting drunk and yeah. aren't really being guards. Right, right. Uh, so we get the revelation of Valeris as co-conspirator in this grand conspiracy, and Spock forces a mind meld on her. Which oh yeah, is uh, this is a this big is, deal. This is mind rape. Yeah. This is, it, it is played as if it's rape. And it is the coldest scene in the moment it is, in the movie. It is incredibly compelling. When Valeris refuses to give the names of the co-conspirators, Kirk just turns to Spock and signals him to go ahead. And Spock forces a mind meld on Valeris. 
He mm. grabs her by the back of her head, and she even tries to back up from him, and he yanks her closer to him. Yep. He puts his other hand on her face and skips all of the my mind to your mind stuff. He's not e- gently easing into this. He just goes into her mind, and they both start naming the conspirators together. And then at, at, at and Kurt keeps saying, who else, who else? And, and they go through the conspirators. And then they ask, where is the uh, where is the peace conference? Because they don't know how to get there at this point. And Spock so forcefully deals with uh, Valeris's mind that she is moaning and crying in pain. Yep. Before Spock says she doesn't know. And and you watch the reaction shots, and in, in particular, watch Nichelle Nichols' reaction shot to this. And it's like, this is played, it's on, on, in, on the subtext level, this is a rape. This is a mental rape. Right. It's, it's, a, it's at least torture, but mental rape as, as a torture device. And I'm uncomfortable with this, you know, the ends justifying the means here mm-hmm. of, of what they're doing. So, yeah, that was... That was hard to watch, and you know, it brings the question: How far is Spock willing to go for peace? And apparently, and in, apparently, very far. And in this case, he's also willing to do it this way and so brutally because he is furious with her. Yeah. He wanted her to be his successor, and now she is a traitor. Right. And he is he is just furious with her, and this leads to another scene where he's back in his quarters, filled with self doubt as a result of all of the, of her betrayal and Kirk has to come back and kind of buck him up. Right. Right. Um, then, uh, we get to, and they have to eventually get the location of, of the peace conference from Sulu and Excelsior. And by the way, we haven't talked much about Sulu. Notice he's, he's been promoted to captain and is mm-hmm. not on the enterprise. This is, he's like the only guy to get out of the hometown. Yes. Everybody else may go up in rank, but they're still on the Enterprise. Yeah. And even Spock is Captain Spock. He's still on the Enterprise. And it's like, how many captains does one ship have? <laughs> but Sulu, at least, man, you got out of this crummy town. You you made something of yourself. You got to go <laughs> elsewhere. Well, this is the same thing that TNG had a problem with. Like, like nobody was ever uh, promoted out of the Enterprise in, in TNG either. I mean, they made yeah. that a whole episode where with Riker trying to get more his own than ship. once. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and they call it Camp Kittimer, which I think is a clear reference to Camp, Camp David. Kittimer. Yeah, Camp David. Yeah, which right. it, Camp David being the famous presidential retreat where diplomatic negotiations often take place. Right. There was the Camp David Accords that brought peace between Egypt and Israel back. Yeah. In the Carter seventies. Yep. Uh, so while they when they get there. Chang is attacking the Enterprise, trying to prevent them to, from stopping the assassination of the Federation president. McCoy and Spock make a special homing torpedo that can home, home in on a— And this is ridiculous. Yeah. But I mean, okay, they should have the engineers do that. It's their yeah. job. <laughs> right. They're exactly. the ones who were trained, not the, the medical doctor and the science officer. Yes, but we have to have them. Yeah, I mean, at least you have Scotty doing it, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if anything, it should be Scotty assisted by Spock, not Spock assisted right. by McCoy. Right. Uh, the, 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 the whole thing was that the Klingon bird of prey was this new, it could fire while cloaked, and therefore uh, it was even more dangerous. But it was a prototype, so don't worry. We don't have to incorporate it into any other Star Trek after this. 
Well, even if they, even if they do, it's fine. It's just, I mean, one of the things that has been sort of pointed out that's sort of fanon, but sort of, I think, actual on-screen canon, because they even talk about this in the original series, is there is an arms race going yeah. on between cloaking technology and the ability to defeat it. Just like today, there is an arms race between stealth technology and the ability to defeat it. I mean, people aren't aware of this, but stealth technology actually begins back in World War II. Mm-hmm. and where you started developing uh, materials you could put on a plane that were radar-resistant. And then after the war in the 50s and 60s, they really started figuring out we could really reduce the radar signature of a plane vastly. Um, but then there's a constant escalation of, okay, the opponent is doing this. How can we defeat it? And so we shouldn't assume that cloak technology is frozen at any one moment. Right. They're, what they're doing is they're the, there are improvements in cloak technology all the time, but then there is a, there are new ways around those that are constantly being thought of all the time. Right, right. But as Uhura says, at you know Spock points out at Impulse, it releases gas like any any anything else. Uhura says it; it's got to have a tailpipe. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, they uh, yeah. Uh, there. This is when we have Chang constantly quoting Shakespeare and McCoy gives his line about I'd pay real money to have that guy shut up. <laughs> that was that was like you said, that was a good line. Yeah, he's uh, just ranting over the phone. Yeah, and then showing at, off yeah. how he can quote Shakespeare even in English. Yeah, and then at the end it just before he dies, it's to be or not to be. Well, I guess not to be is the is the way, yeah. the way it is. Uh after they stop the attack, they beam down and they they, they stop the assassin before, uh, as he shoots and Oh Kirk, also we should mention yeah. Sulu on the Excelsior is like racing to the Kittimer conference at the oh, same yeah. time. And shows up in time to assist the Enterprise in blowing up Chang's ship. Right. And and Sulu does get a good line on the way there. He's he's like, faster, faster. And the helmsman says, she'll fly apart. And he says, fly her apart then. Yeah. Which is a really cool line. But also, no, please really don't fly her apart. <laughs> <laughs> Push her to the limit, though. Uh, I, I always love Sulu. Uh, by the way, this is the this movie. We get the canonical. Uh, his first name is Hikaru Sulu, mm-hmm. so we get that in canon. And this is only the second time that Kirk's middle name is used. Tiberius. Yeah, uh, the first previous, time was in an animated episode. Right. It was in, uh, I believe, Bem by David Gerald. Yeah. And so this it, because Roddenberry went back and forth on is the animated series canonical. Yeah. This makes it definitive. Makes it definitive. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, though, and so in the epilogue of the movie, we have the Enterprise is being recalled to be decommissioned along with its crew, and uh, they decide to take the long way home. And we get the line, uh, second star to the right and straight on till morning, you know, as they're from Peter Pan, uh, which is, uh, and then they they literally fly off into the sunset, or at least into the sun. Into in a case. sun, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, they dematerialize before they smack into that sun. <laughs> Maybe you should go a little to the left of it, please. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then that's where we end it. And it's the it is the end of the original series crew uh, together. Era. We will we will see the various characters show up again. Kirk, obviously, in Generations, which is the next movie in the first TNG movie. S- Scotty shows up in TNG. Spock, of course, shows up multiple times. I don't think any of the others. Well, Spock shows up twice. He's mentioned more than that. Well, after this, he shows up in the well. He's in the J.J. Abrams movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then um, 
I forget where else. He was in TNG twice. Yeah, right. Although, was that, I think that was before this movie, wasn't it? I, no, I forget. No, it was, it, I believe. No, it was after. Okay, okay. Um. So, in any case, this ends an era of, of Star Trek, which is, you know, a pretty big deal. And then mm-hmm. ends that era of this crew who, you know, the, the actors had <laughs> reached a point where I don't think they could keep doing this, and believably, anyway. Uh, they could have done, well, they're already, it's, uh, well. Picard Mr. is Mr. Scott <laughs> would Mr. Scott would not have passed Starfleet physicals, but um, if you ignore things like that, you know they yeah. could have kept going. But I'm glad they went out on a on a high note instead of if imagine if five had been the end. Oh my gosh, that would have oh, been wow. horrible. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. Yeah. All right. Anything left to say about this one, Jimmy? A few a few minor notes. Um, the um, there was, uh, if you watch in the dilithium mines at Rurapente, the prisoners are using beam, beam tools, mm-hmm. with, like lasers or something, or right. phasers or something to get at the dilithium. And it seems to me that's a really bad strategy. <laughs> right. Uh, if, if, if you have a bunch of convicts, you don't give them beam weapons. Right. Or they'll just have a prison break and turn on their guards, and then they'll turn off the magnetic field and so forth. So it, it let them swing picks or something, but uh, you know, don't give them ranged weapons. Yep, that, that um, seems like a bad idea. In, in the fight with um, with Chang ship, the Enterprise starts taking heavy damage, and we get to see like a. And I like how it with the three dimensional combat. Not all of the, it's not like they're just shooting at each other's, you know, bow uh, or stern. Um, You have a torpedo bisect, one of Chang's photon torpedoes bisect the saucer section and blow up through it, destroying Mm -hmm. the officer's mess set that we had seen previously in the episode. Right. Um, So I like the, the, I like that. And then, and in the final scene, after they've stopped, by the way, the, um, the final scene where we have, even though it's not known in the theatrical version, but it's Colonel West as the mm-hmm. assassin, it's very reminiscent of the end of the movie, The Manchurian Candidate, mm. and and some other films too. But in the walk down from the climactic moment, they're talking about the end of history. And this was another phrase from the time where there was a historian, I, I want to say it was Samuel Huntington, but I, I may be misremembering that, who was talking about how since democracies tend not to fight other democracies, they tend not to go to war if it's a legitimate democracy, that the as a result of the falling apart of the Soviet Union and the capitalist system proving superior to uh, communism and the spread of democracy in the world, that we were, in a sense— approaching the end of history. Yeah. <laughs> and and there and he didn't mean that there would be no conflicts. Right. So he was kind of parodied as saying something he wasn't. He didn't mean that there would be no conflicts or no future wars, but that there wouldn't be the big enormous violent upheavals that had characterized the 20th century. And and that you would exp- and there wouldn't be like big shifts in history in the future, but just kind of playing around the edges and it, we had effectively worked out an effective global governance system. Um, and then nine 11 happened and everyone made fun of him. Yeah. But 
that was an, the idea that we were reaching the end of history was something that was kind of in the zeitgeist at the time. And here they say, well, it may not, we, I don't think we've run out of history just yet. And that proved to be true in the real world too. Right, right. Yeah. And it, it, it I think it's also the subtext is there's still a lot of Star Trek possible, you know, that they were planning to, to make more Star Trek. And, yeah. you know, after this movie, we, we still had at the, at this point, all we had was the original series and TNG. But after this movie, we got DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, more movies we got, you know, and then the newer stuff. I, I forgot and to at mention least, but, at least one of the things you just named was good. Yeah, well, I forgot <laughs> to mention Lower Decks. There is a Lower Decks episode called okay, in their first two, season. Then. Two of the things you <laughs> named are good. They had an episode called Veritas where they had a, a trial that was very reminiscent of the trial in, in in this movie and was a lot of fun to to watch. So if you haven't watched Lower Decks yet, uh, do that and and you'll enjoy it. But you'll, when you get to Veritas, you'll you'll enjoy that especially. Um, all right. I think that should do it. We, uh, we've uh, talked long enough about this. Uh, we do want to stop to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Martin G., Robert S., Kelly G., Jacob S., and Mary W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next generation story, The Battle. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you. Live long and prosper. Kapla and Jolan True. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. (laughs) 